<clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's a Bible in the pew next to you if you didn't bring your own. We're going to tie together two passages, one in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 33, the other in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> so those of you that have multiple flexible fingers can leave a finger between the John chapter 12 passage and another one in Philippians. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and read those two passages from the King James Bible. You can follow along in whatever translation you're comfortable with or whatever you've got. <clears throat> now, you remember the context here. Uh, in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In the tail end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we saw that the response of his enemies was to want to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Now, right before this passage I'm about to read, uh, at the at the feast there, the beginning of the, getting ready for the Passover, uh, some of the people have been looking for Jesus. Eventually, some Gentile believers, there were, I believe, proselytes, uh, came and talked to two of the disciples and said, we want, we want to talk to your master. We want to talk to Jesus. And rather than just saying, come on, let's go, they basically said, wait here, we'll go ask. <clears throat> um, and rather than meeting with them, Jesus' response was that now was the hour for him to be glorified. He recognized that, okay, it's time now. It is my hour. Now I am headed for the cross. <clears throat> so that's where we're starting is in John chapter 12, verse 23. <clears throat> 22, Philip had come and called Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus that these, these uh, Greeks had come up to worship, wanted to talk to Jesus. They said, sir, we would see Jesus. John, uh, in 22, it says, Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. <clears throat> he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. By the way, in case you're wondering, it's not the same as we think of love and hate. He's only setting what your priorities are. If you're really, really geared into what this world has to offer and this physical life, then ultimately you're, you're going to lose everything. Uh, if you're recognizing that the priority is, is God's will and God's life and the eternal values, <clears throat> then you, what you gain, you keep into eternal life. Anyway, verse 26 and following, it says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him shall my father, will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came to this hour. This is what I came into the world for. Father, glorify thy name. <clears throat> then there came a voice from heaven, saying, I both glorified it, and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, apparently not including the disciples, the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered, and others said an angel spoke to him. Evidently, the disciples heard it for what it was. 
And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying by what death he should die. <clears throat> now, if you want to hold your finger there and turn to Philippians, that would be good. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> this is Paul talking to the believers at Philippi. They were his partners in the work. They were his best friends. <clears throat> Philippians is a pretty special book because there are no criticisms. There are no corrective teachings. It's all encouragement. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I think the newer translations say, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but made himself of no reputation <clears throat> and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. All right. So we don't usually associate Christmas with the crucifixion. Uh, we we like the baby in the manger. Uh, crucifixion is kind of gory and bad, and we feel sad when we think about that. And we think about the baby in the manger, we feel glad, and we have nice memories and nice feelings. <clears throat> We separate Christmas out so completely that probably many of you thought, well, Christmas is coming on Sunday this year. Are we going to have church? Holy mackerel, guys. Jesus' birthday. If, that, if we're not having church on Jesus' birthday, I'd really like to know what we're doing. Okay. <clears throat> it's the reason we have church at all. If we really consider Christmas to be Jesus' birthday, why would we not come together to celebrate his birthday? And if we really believe that his reason in coming was to die in our place, and we do believe that, that's what he says here, and in so doing to purchase eternal life as a gift for us, then why would we not want to return the gifts of worship and thanksgiving and obedience and love to him? <clears throat> that's what it's about. He deserves those things. So in John chapter 12 here, there are several key phrases each of which could have been a sermon on their own. I mean, I could e easily preach a sermon around just the phrase, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that actually is the title today, except a corn of wheat. <clears throat> but there's a whole bunch more things here. Uh, if any man serve, him, serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there also shall my servant be. And him that serves me, him will my father honor. That could be a whole sermon in itself. Uh, for this hour, excuse me, for this cause came I unto this hour. That one could be all by itself. But I don't want to do that this morning. What I want to do is tie together all these key phrases with the companion passage in Philippians and then see how all of these things fit together to show us the connection between Christmas and the cross. Because there is a connection there. 
<clears throat> As I said, we don't like thinking about the cross when we're thinking about Jesus. We, we, we like the baby in the manger story. <clears throat> we remember the precious promises that were being fulfilled there, and we were overwhelmed by the mystery of God, and we consider that all these promises that have been made in the Old Testament, and there was hundreds of them, that they all had to be fulfilled in one man. That, and they're all things that he couldn't go fulfill on his own unless he was God. That I couldn't choose what town I was born in. I couldn't even choose what family I was born in. I couldn't choose anything. Uh, <clears throat> but we celebrate this fact of history that validates our faith. We know what happened there. <clears throat> and we, we know that it's well documented. Uh, but as we're reading here in John, it's easy to, to forget that the gory, horrible, shameful murder of the holy, that holy child, that king of the Jews, that was born king of the Jews, that was not only coming, it was absolutely necessary, and it was the purpose for which he came. But the issue is, what we're going to find out, is that we can't approach that baby, that king, in worship except to come through the cross. And that is the connection. <clears throat> so let's look again at some of the key statements. In John chapter 12 here, he said uh, three real key statements. Except a corn means a kernel, a grain, of wheat, fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. That's in verse 24. Also in verse 24, it says, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It produces much fruit. We're going to need to see what kind of fruit are we talking about. <clears throat> The third thing he says is, for this cause came I unto this hour, in verse 27. And verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world, and now shall the prince of this world be cast out. <clears throat> so what we just read was Jesus' statement regarding his birth and his death. This is the purpose that he came. This is why he came. He said he was born to die. He also said that his death had a specific purpose, and that purpose had several subclauses. One is that he was going to bring forth fruit through his death. We're going to see what kind of fruit. Two is that the world is judged, and that's both a positive and a negative thing. The sins of the whole world were judged at the cross. Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. First uh, John 2, 2 makes that absolutely clear. He says it was not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I know there's people that teach otherwise. Sorry, that's what it says. That's straight quote, word for word. He also said that the prince of this world is cast out, that the fulfillment of what the promise was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he said that this person, the seed of the woman, would crush the serpent's head, would undo what Satan had accomplished there in the garden by causing Adam and Eve to fall into sin. <clears throat> this person, the seed of the woman, not the seed of a man and woman, there's only one person in, in history that could fulfill that, and it was the seed of the woman. The, the virgin birth is a necessity. It is part of the gospel. It has to be there. Uh, that the fulfillment of that is right here. He says, now the prince of this world is cast out. This, that's the serpent that was in the garden. I don't mean the snake proper. I mean the, the Satan that was talking through the snake. And we see that borne out in, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says that old serpent, Satan, the devil, he calls him 
all those three names so that we're real clear on who this person is. <clears throat> so what we just read told us those three things, but it also gave us a clue as to what kind of fruit he meant and what kind of death he meant. He says, and I, verse 32, it says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Really. And verse 33 says, thus he said, signifying what death he should die. So part of the fruit that he was going to bring is that he's the magnet that God uses to draw the whole human race to himself. Only those that will respond in faith will come. That he knows ahead of time who they are, sure, but he doesn't cause them to do that. He has every person has a choice to either believe God or not. <clears throat> every person, every believer has a choice to either obey God on a regular daily basis, as Randy was talking, or not. You're either going to walk with Him and serve Him, or you're not. There's, there's, those choices are open to us all the time, and an unbeliever has a choice to either believe the word or not when they hear the gospel. I think I told you before about a lady at work when, when I was going in for heart surgery I didn't know if I'd be coming back or not and I hadn't shared the gospel with her and I wanted to I asked her, name was, her name was Mandy said Mandy if, if you could know for sure that God existed and you could know him personally if you could know for sure that all your sins were paid for and that you could have eternal life now and not wait till you die to find out if you made it would you be interested in knowing that and she says nope just like that turned her head whoop to the side, nope. I said, okay, I won't, I won't bother you with it, but I had to ask. Well, after I'd come back from the surgery, if not long after that, uh, our boss's son got killed in a climbing accident up in the gorge, and uh, everybody went to the kid's funeral. And the guy that did the funeral did an excellent, excellent job of presenting the gospel. I couldn't have done it better if I'd tried. And I could look across the church, I could see her over on the other side. She got to hear the gospel. Say, she voluntarily went to that, rest, that, that funeral, but she heard the gospel in detail. And I thought, lady, if you turn this down, you have no excuse. You can't say, well, Chet was going to tell me, but he didn't. Oh, no, she heard it. She heard it in detail. Okay, she had a choice. Whether she made that choice or not, I never saw her again. She moved up to Washington someplace, Seattle, I think. <coughs> Everybody's got a choice. And Jesus is the magnet that God is using to draw people to himself. And only those that will look to him as God's power and his choice, his way of saving people, will respond. He said that by means of the crucifixion, he would draw all humans. And that the sins of the whole human race were judged at the cross. He is the magnet drawing souls to God. And we find the baby in the manger very touching and the story of the miraculous birth thrilling. But the only means by which we can approach that holy child, that king, is through the cross. That's the way that we can approach. <clears throat> in fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, it flat out says that we're invited to approach him through the veil. You remember when he was crucified, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Was the way was opened into the holy place. And he said that we're to approach him through the veil, that is to say his flesh, that that veil was a picture of Jesus' body which was torn for us. In the midst of that, he also knew, let us know what we can do as believers. If we're 
among those that have been born again through faith, that we responded in faith, he says we're to follow him. He says, if any man to serve me, let him follow me. <clears throat> and he goes on to say that those who are his servants will be where he is. And he concludes that those who serve him will be honored by God the Father. He says, if any man serve me, let him follow me, in verse 26. And he goes on in the same verse to say, where I am, there also shall my servant be. And if any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, there's some interesting things we've learned in our past studies that uh, there's a guy in the Old Testament named Lot who, honestly, if you just read the story about Lot from Genesis chapters 13 through 19, he disappears after that. Uh, I see nothing in his life that would tell me he was a believer. But when I get into 2 Peter chapter 2, God says that Lot was a believer, that Lot was a just man, a saved man, a holy man, that God had set him aside. How does God save somebody like that? Well, same way as he saves everybody else, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. That Abraham was saved by grace, through faith, plus nothing. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Lot was saved the same way. Lot did not follow through and follow God. He didn't serve God. Uh, we see one feeble attempt in the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where he tried to get those two angels off the street thinking they were just men. Um, but that's it. All the rest of his story was wreckage. And we saw that he lost everything. He went into Sodom and Gomorrah, a very, very wealthy man. Came out dirt poor. He didn't have anything. Uh, <clears throat> Somebody last week told me in Bible study, yeah, but she was a, his wife was a pillar of the community. Oh, boy. I'm told she was pretty salty, though. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's pretty bad. But it's, it's good for me to see Lot because I could, I, could mistake, I could mistakenly read here that the way you're saved is through serving him. No, only the saved people can serve him, and they're going to be with him regardless. But if you re want reward, then you don't act like Lot. You act like Abraham. If you want God to honor you, which is what he'll do with Abraham, uh, then you follow him, you serve him, you, you do the things that God calls you to do. And he gives you lots of detail in the word. We're going to talk about a little bit of it today. Uh, he leads you by his, his Holy Spirit, by his written word. Uh, and those that choose the day by day submit themselves to him and lead a life that follows him and honors him, then yeah, God's going to honor you. That's what he says here. So how do we respond to that call? When Jesus said that his servants would follow him, what did he mean? He obviously knew that they would all be scattered before the cross. If we just talk about the disciples, they scattered like a flock of quail when the Jews came and arrested Jesus. A few of them hung on to kind of watch the trial from a distance, but by the time he was crucified, there was just a handful of women. Uh, I think John was there for at least for part of it but the rest of them were gone. So did that mean they didn't follow him? No. He knew that this portion of his ministry he had to do by himself. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane with his group of guys, left them a, a little ways off. He went to pray, turned around to see how they were doing. They were all asleep. And over and over, he's on the way to the cross, 
is shown to be on his own. It's him and God. That's okay, because when I read the picture of that crucifixion back in Genesis, when I see Abraham and Isaac walking up that mountain, they were walking alone. They left the servants behind. They walked alone up that mountain, and they were in perfect fellowship. When Isaac asked his father, I see the knife, I see the fire, I see the wood, where's the lamb? He says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And it says the two of them walked on together, both of them. We see the fellowship of the father and the son. <clears throat> so Jesus walked to the cross in human terms alone. So we couldn't follow him in that way. They didn't. He knew that all the disciples were going to be scattered. He also knew which of his servants down through history were going to suffer for his sake. He knew that most of his disciples, if not all, were going to be martyred. Uh, there's some that think that John just lived the last of his life out on Patmos in exile. For sure, the rest of them were killed. Uh, but some historians say, no, he was taken back off of Patmos, and he was executed also. Okay, I don't know. Uh, history is not real clear on that. But his call is extended through them to all of us, follow me. In John chapter 21, um, Peter has been called away from the boat for the fourth time, away from the fish for the fourth time. Uh, and Jesus was telling him to follow him. Well, Peter looked back and saw John trailing along a little further behind. He said, well, what about him? What's he going to do? He says, you don't worry about him. You follow me. Okay, and that's for us, too. You don't worry about those others. You follow me. You follow Jesus. So what did it mean to follow Jesus? <clears throat> None of us have ever seen him, let alone physically followed him. We, we can't just go walk where he walked or do what he does in any literal sense. And when we, but when we read 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul is speaking to the believers at Corinth. By the way, they were a fairly rough group. Uh, I'm glad we didn't name the church the Corinthian church because that has some bad connotations. I think it is perfect, perfectly appropriate that Pat put the motto out, this is the perfect church for those who aren't. Well, Corinth was even more aren't. Uh, it had all kinds of problems. And what Paul told them is in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be followers of God, uh, followers of me as I am of Christ. In Ephesians, he said, be imitators of God as dear children. That's, I was starting to mix up those two. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, follow me as I follow Christ. So, well, Paul had only seen Jesus in a vision once, as far as we know. There's other times, many other times, when Jesus talked to him, but he never saw him in the flesh. He never got to know him in person like the other disciples did, the other apostles. <clears throat> but he was following Jesus in obedience. And he said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So what was he telling them to do? He was telling them to live in obedience to Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, we can see admonitions to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, or actually, yeah, 1 through 3 especially, but going on into the next several verses, teaches us what that means, to, to walk in lowliness and meekness and, and getting along with each other and striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, and he goes on to talk about what that unity is and so forth. <clears throat> but he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, 
maybe, and I hope nobody feels this way, but I've heard people say before, well, you know, I don't feel called. When, the, when you invite somebody to serve, you invite somebody to teach, you invite somebody to work as a, as a missionary, as a anything, they'll, they'll start saying, I don't feel called. Well, go read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. We like the first verse of that because it says, God, we know that God makes all things to work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, if you're saying you love God and you're saying that you belong to him, you better recognize you're called because he goes on down by the time you get to verse 30, he says, if you're saved, you're called. Yes, you are called. <clears throat> so we need to see what that means. Ultimately, it always comes down to a choice. Either I will or I will not obey Jesus and daily seek to follow him. Follow him. Either I will or I will not choose to feed on his word daily so that his word can soak into me and start changing my life. And by the way, that is the only thing God says can do that. Yes, it's by the Holy Spirit. But in Psalm 119, verse 9, he asks the rhetorical question, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And it goes, he answers it by taking heed thereto according to thy word. That's the only thing that God says can change your heart. Either you're going to choose to feed on his word daily and allow his word to affect your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions, or you won't. Either I will or I will not look to him for opportunities to serve him in practical ways. And no, Randy did not know this is what I was preaching on. <clears throat> on a daily basis, either you're going to look to God, what can I do today that would please you? What would you want me to do? Is there anybody you'd like me to speak to? Is there a hungry soul someplace that I can feed? Is there somebody that's open to the gospel and I can lead him to you? If you're not looking that way, then you ought to be. Either you're going to look to him for opportunities to serve him or you're not in practical ways. Serving as his hands, his feet, his voice in this fallen world. So how did Jesus do it? <clears throat> well, that's why we need to turn to Philippians. So Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see what Jesus did. I think I'm going to need new glasses someday soon. Philippians chapter 2, God lays out seven steps that Jesus did. This is, by the way, in Greek, this is the word here is kenosis. It means emptying. This is called the kenosis passage because it talks about how Jesus emptied himself of his prerogatives as God the Son. Remember that he's the creator. He's the judge of all the earth. We already saw we saw him in Genesis that way, and we also see in John chapter 5 that Jesus flat out said that he was the judge of all the earth. John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. So having seen that, and seen who Jesus was before he became a human, before he was born at Bethlehem, that he was all those things. He's the one that Abraham talked to face to face, 
fed him a beef sandwich and a glass of milk. That's not exactly what it says, but it was beef and bread and butter and milk. So if I had it, I'd make a beef sandwich and a glass of milk. Uh, but before all that, that's who he was. And what did he do? Well, he chose to set that aside. That's where the, the word kenosis comes in, that he emptied himself. He chose a position of no reputation. He chose to be born uh, a human baby in a poor family, in a poor community, in a poor nation that was right then a slave state of Rome. It was no longer the rich nation that it had been under Jehoshaphat or under Hezekiah. <coughs> it was a poor place. He chose to become a servant. Now, the Greek word there is doulos. That is the bond servant. It means a slave, a slave by choice. Uh, that's what Paul called himself, that he was the servant of the gospel, the doulos. And in the Old Testament, we saw the, the companion word ebed, and it means a slave. But it means a, a slave who had the opportunity to go free and chose to stay a slave to that master. He became a servant. And then it goes on to say that as a servant, he became a human servant. Well, why did I, aren't they all? No, the angels are servants too. But they're full of glory and power and zooming around the universe doing God's will, and we're stuck here on this ball of dirt, right? He didn't become an angel. Why did he become a human? Well, partly for the humility portion of it here, and partly because if he didn't become a human, he couldn't be our savior. He had to have a human body to die in our place. The, the kinsman redeemer had to be related. That's why Boaz had to be closely related to Naomi. Uh, uh, he had to have the price of redemption, in Jesus' case, a perfect life, uh, perfect sacrifice. In Boaz's case, he simply had to have the money to buy the fields of Naomi, get her back out of debt. Uh, he had to be free himself. Jesus was free of sin. Boaz was not a slave. He wasn't in poverty. He wasn't in bankruptcy. And finally, he had to be willing. You remember, Boaz was absolutely willing. The other guy that A, had the money, B, was actually closer related, and C, was free himself, was not willing. He absolutely did not want to redeem the fields of Naomi and Ruth because it was involved Mary and Ruth, and he didn't want him. Boaz did. Jesus was willing. Jesus had the price of redemption. He had that perfect life. He was free himself. He didn't have a sin nature. He was a close relative. He became a human being for our sake, and he was willing. He came for this extreme, this exact purpose, this express purpose. <clears throat> so the final three says he chose to humble himself. He lived a life of complete obedience and humility. He didn't strut around saying, I'm the son of God. You better listen to me. Nope. He went ahead and talked to people. Uh, you look at how he talked to the woman at the well. He was very gentle with her. Uh, how he healed the sick and taught people and you know let the little children come up to him and so forth. He wasn't acting like a rock star. He was acting like a humble carpenter. But he says he chose a lifestyle of absolute obedience to his father, including the obedience of the cross. Not just obedience where it was comfortable, not just obedience where it was easy, not just obedience where it was something that made people think well of him. The, the obedience of the cross meant a terrible, painful, gory, shameful death. They stripped him naked, they beat him half to death, 
and nailed him onto this piece of wood, this cross, and hung him up there to die in public. Public nakedness was an absolute shame to the Jews. They yanked his beard out of his face. Uh, a man's beard was part of his dignity as a man, and they says they plucked it out. And the Old Testament says they gave him over to those who plucked the beard out of his face. Uh, that's not repeated in the New Testament. It doesn't say that there. It says that in the Old Testament that that's what was going to happen to him. He was obedient through the cross. Now, <clears throat> when he says, follow him, can I do any of the seven things that he just said? Well, no. As a matter of fact, I can't. Not the same way he did. I don't have, I was never God. I can't choose to set aside my prerogatives as God. I never had them. So that's not on the table for me. Uh, I can't choose to become a human. I was born one. I didn't have any choice about that. I'm glad I was born a human. Uh, I didn't have any choice about what family I was born into or what place. You know, uh, I hesitate to tell people where I was born because it's a place that has a lot of negative connotations in our country. And, and when I tell them, yeah, I was born in Bryan, Texas, they'll say, oh, well, that explains a great deal. And I think, what? It means that there's a baby whose parents were in, in school at Texas A&M when he was born and moved away immediately thereafter and have lived in the Pacific Northwest for the whole rest of my life. But the first thing they say is, well, that explains a lot. Okay, I didn't have any choice about that one. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to ask me why I was born there because I want to tell them, well, I just wanted to be close to my mom. You know, <clears throat> I didn't have any choice in the matter. It's a stupid question. Okay. The, you know, choosing to become a slave, well, I kind of I can choose that, but the fact is the whole human race are slaves whether we know it or not. We're either slaves to sin, and, and in doing so we call ourselves the master of our fate and the captain of our souls, which is baloney. But some of you are familiar with the poem by William Henry Henley uh, Invictus where he, he claims I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. It's total hogwash. No, you're not. We're either a slave to sin and ultimately to Satan, or we, by choice, become servants of God. And even as believers, I can wake up grumpy or get mad in traffic or whatever, and right ahead, right, right then, go ahead and set aside my servanthood with God, and, be, and I'm serving sin again. I'm serving me. We're all slaves, whether we know it or not. So that's not really a choice either. It's only a matter of which, who you're going to choose, who you're going to serve. That's where my choices are. <clears throat> I can choose to humble myself. I can choose a lifestyle of obedience to the Father. And I can choose obedience when it's not comfortable. Those are the three choices I have through which I can seriously follow Jesus. I can choose obedience, but I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do. And I can't even choose obedience on my own. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit indwelling me, if it weren't for the fact that I've been born again, that I have a new nature, that I belong to him now, I couldn't even choose obedience. I remember right before I became a believer trying to choose obedience, trying to, to live with a free, clear conscience. Couldn't do it. Within a month or so, I was getting pretty depressed because I found out I can't keep the rules even if I make the rules. That's a fact. I'm a sinner. See, so what Jesus said in John 12, 27, he says, For this cause I am coming to this hour. 
In Luke 19.10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So his whole purpose in coming is stated there. He says, I came for this purpose to this hour. This, is, this was my goal. This is my destination the whole time. And the means by which it had to be done was stated there in Philippians 2 that we just read. So all the prophecies had to be fulfilled in him as to where he was born, what family he was born to, the lineage of David, what family he was not born to. There was a, a king under David named Jeconiah. Actually, he had several Old Testament names, but Jeconiah was one of them, uh, who was cursed by God with God saying that nobody from his lineage would ever sit on the throne. If you read the, what do you call it, a genealogy in, chap in chapter 1 of Matthew, Joseph was from the lineage of Jeconiah. If Joseph was Jesus' dad, Jesus could not be the king of the Jews. He'd be disqualified by Jeconiah's blood, bloodline. If Jesus was not virgin born, if he weren't going through the other genealogy that's in Luke chapter 2, then Jesus could not be the Messiah. <clears throat> so all those things had to be fulfilled in one, per, in one person. The reason we get emotional about the birth of Jesus, and we should, is that it marks the beginning of the unwrapping of the greatest gift ever given. John 3.16 says it this way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, as individuals, we began unwrapping that gift the day we trusted in Jesus' shed blood at the cross as being full payment for our sins. But the unwrapping of that gift takes our whole lives. If you're willing to get on with it and serve him and follow him, then you're unwrapping that gift on a daily basis and getting closer and closer to knowing him face to face. And the day it'll be fully unwrapped, you'll be standing before him. Okay. It'll, you'll get to that point one way or another if you're already a believer. But if you want to experience the joy of the Lord in this life, start unwrapping that gift, the gift that he gave you at the cross, the gift that we saw the beginning of it in, in Bethlehem. One of the points at which we tend to stick is this idea of actually following Jesus. Don't allow that to make, make you stumble. We don't like the idea of slavery, even when we know that the only master we'll ever have to serve now is the one who already owned us by creation. He owns every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle in the universe. Yes, including the immaterial things such as your soul, your spirit. He created you. He owns you by creation. He also owns you by redemption. He bought you back out of sin at the cross. He shed his blood to buy you back. He owns you twice that way, and now he's asking you to act like it. Respond to him in faith. Respond to him in obedience. We're rebels by nature, so it requires, for us to do that, it requires that we repent. That means change your mind. That's what the word repentance means, change of mind. Repent of our rebellion. It means that we change our minds about our stubborn desire for self-direction and self-determination and self-will. That's all repentance means. Change your mind. And Jesus came with a particular purpose in mind. He carried out that purpose faithfully. He went all the way, step by step, heading for the cross through his whole life. God gave us a purpose. In Ephesians 2.10, says he saved us with a purpose in mind. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So walk in them. That's what obedience entails. It means God has set things up in the, in the past for things 
for you to do. And if you'll walk with him in obedience, he'll let you know what those things are, and you can fulfill his purpose in your life, and he'll honor you for that. You fulfill that purpose through faith and obedience, just walking with him. He saved, said he saved us to be his ambassadors and his witnesses. He says that we're saved to serve. We don't lose that position if we fail to live up to it. We just don't get the rewards associated with obedience. And Jesus came as a precious baby, but not just so that we could sigh and think how wonderful babies are. That's not what it's about. It was rather so that we could see that God kept his promises. He had promised that down through the ages. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. There's the Trinity for you. The Prince of Peace. That's who we're called to, to serve. That's who we're called to unwrap is this gift that was given to us at Christmas. He calls to us to approach that holy child, the eternal king, as our savior and master and to offer ourselves as a worship gift. That's what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is about, that we offer our bodies daily as a living sacrifice, a worship offering to him, seeking to, to be the people that he's called us to be. Let's pray, and then we're going to have communion together, and then we'll close. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you to awaken our hearts. Glorify yourself in us as your servants. Help us to daily choose to function as your servants, not serving ourselves, but serving you and the work you've chosen for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.